0: Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. 24 on First Samuel, and uh, just a little refresher for those of you who've been with us and maybe a little insight into those who may be joining us for the first time is the book of 1 Samuel fits into the large story of the Bible uh, by explaining uh, why the the New Testament was talking about the Messiah coming, Jesus being the son of David. And so there's this one story that goes all the way through the Bible of the seed of the woman back in Genesis chapter 3 and it's pulled all the way through and you're wondering who the seed of the woman is going to be who's going to drive out all darkness and evil in the world, redeem God's people, and to bring about God's rule of, uh, his, his kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy. And so this is kind of narrowing down for us the story of 1 Samuel on uh, who that person is. He's going to be a son of David. He's going to be one of David's descendants. So that's what the New Testament talks about. But over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at kind of the, the that's the, you know, the satellite view. This is the on the ground, boots on the ground, Uh, body camera view of what's going on in Israel at this time. So, at this point, uh, you have a woman named Hannah, and Hannah has had, uh, she was barren for many years, unable to have a child. She prays and says, Lord, if you give me a son, he's going to grow up in your house in the temple area, and I'm going to give him to you. And so, she did that. She left Samuel in the temple with the older, old priest Eli, and even his wicked sons, and in the background of all the duties that were taking place, and all the evil things that were taking place in the, the temple at that point is this little boy running around dressed as a priest doing the ministry of a priest and so when we come into 1st uh, Samuel chapter 3 Samuel's not a little boy anymore he's a young man and this is his call to be a prophet of the Lord and so if you're willing and able in honor of God and his word let me invite you to stand as we read 1st Samuel chapter 3. Now The boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he couldn't see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again, the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood Calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. For the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son? And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. This is Eli. Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever, and that is good news. Let me pray and ask him to bless us. we have your word before us, and we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would now teach us, teach us how to understand this passage, teach us how to apply this passage, teach us how to live it out in our day and age. We pray that you would speak to our souls, just as so long ago you, Lord, spoke to Samuel, different means, different method, but still your word, and so we pray that you would enable us to hear, be transformed, and I pray that you would bless me, Lord, because I am handling holy things. And uh, I'm not just a little boy, I'm a sinner, and I need your help. Bless me to hold forth holy and life-giving truths to your people, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So we had a, a celebrity sighting uh, last week. Uh, Rebecca and Paul and I were driving d- down in Orlando area, and we drove past this car. It was a very sporty kind of black Tesla and as we drove past, Paul said, "I think Paul's my son. If you don't know," Paul said, "That guy looked just like Paul Rudd." I said, "Paul, Paul Rudd's an actor. He's a kind of a, he's a co- comedian." And uh, we said, "Really?" So I tried to slow down a little bit, but the traffic he slowed down. He was like we, I was speeding probably. So I was going past him, and and I tried to like slow down to let him catch with us, but he was he was going he was going to the speed limit, and so and so I'm slowing down, and he's right on our and I'm like trying to drive and look back, and so we got to this place where either we could turn left, or, and he had to turn right, and we were in a little traffic, and he came past us pretty quickly, and I looked, and it looked like Paul Rudd's jaw. It looked like the, like, dark hair. It looked like Paul Rudd. He had on, like, an orange baseball cap, and he's driving by, and it's like, that's Paul Rudd. Now, was it really Paul Rudd? I have no idea. <laughs> it's kind of fun to think about that being Paul Rudd, but it went by so quick, And we had this kind of like vague sense, maybe that was Paul Rudd, but we're not sure. So we're going to tell ourselves it was Paul Rudd. In fact, I wish I had it, but I doctored a picture of us down in Orlando that day with Paul and me standing side by side and Paul Rudd in the middle. And I sent it to my big kids. It was kind of funny. Um, That has nothing to do with this sermon. Yes, it does. Because it's kind of showing us what is important about this passage is the Lord has clearly made himself known. As the Lord, He didn't come zooming by in a car, right? He wasn't wearing an orange baseball cap to kind of go incognito. God has made Himself known to His people and in the world, and that it, all of that is written down in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so, what we have in our hands this morning that we're looking at is a is something that we would say is holy. It has a divine source. It comes from God Himself. This is the record of God interacting with people. It's inspired by God. God has interacted with the world. He's, in, he's revealed himself. He cares about the people in the world, and he's given us an account of that for us. And so we're talking this morning about a God who speaks. So step into this with me a little bit. The first point here is a God who speaks as he chooses. First Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So he uses the idea here. He he uses the phrase, the word of the Lord. And that's an interesting phrase because it's getting at the the reality that God has spoken. We have a record of this. And uh, when people wrote down the Bible, it wasn't just a human attempt thinking, what might God have said if there really was a God? What would he have said to the situation? No. These are God's word himself. We have the words of God himself. But 1 Samuel 3.1 also says this, that during this broad section of time, God was silent. He wasn't making himself known by audible revelations the way that he had with Israelites at Mount Sinai or with Moses or with others. The word of the Lord was rare. He was silent. And this bumps up into our big issue that modern people have with God is we don't, we don't experience God the way that we experience anything else. We don't experience God the way that we experience temperature or the way that we experience squirrels in the attic or the way that we experience Nutella. We don't experience God in any of those same ways. And the, why would we think that we would? It's because we would think that God is a part of creation, but he's not a part of creation. He's apart from creation. He existed before there was a creation. He's not a part of it. The way all of these other things are, so there's nothing tangible about God in the world that we could go to. There's no artifacts. There's no footprints. There's no uh, there's no like radio waves coming from deep space where God is sending signals to us and we, that we could pick up. There's nothing in creation this way, right? For us to know God, God has to reveal Himself. Yet people conceive of God being experienced uh, and known like anything else, and this kind of messes us up. So, Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin was the first person in space. I'm not old enough to remember. Do any of you remember when that happened? You were there, you watched. Yeah, you watched. There was like the space race with the Russians, the communists. Well, in a later speech, communist leader Nikita Khrushchev, speaking of Gagarin, said, Gagarin flew into space but did not see any god there. It's a fascinating, like, thing to say, right? Because there's this conception of, Okay, he's not here this way. There's no house we can go to in the villages and find God. So maybe he's up in space because the Bible talks about heaven. But that's still part of the creation, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And talking about this statement by Nikita Khrushchev, C.S. Lewis said in an essay called The Seeing Eye, if you can put that up for us to quote, The Russians, I am told, report that they have not found God in outer space. The conclusion some want to us to draw from these data is that God does not exist. Looking for God or heaven by exploring spaces like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters or Stratford as one of the places. Shakespeare is in one sense present at every moment in every play because he's the author. But he is never present in the same way as Falstaff or Lady Macbeth, nor is he diffused through the play like a gas. Now, of course, this is only an analogy. I am not suggesting at all that the existence of God is as easily established as the existence of Shakespeare. My point is that if God does exist, he is related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as one object in the universe is related to another. And an interesting way of thinking about it. In other words, J.K. Rowling is on every single one of the Harry Potter books, but she's not one of the characters in the story. It's the same when it comes with God. God is there, but he's not known like anything else. How would we know him? He would have to reveal himself. And how would God reveal himself? How would we know it was him? Well, this section of Samuel gives us some important insight into how God communicated with people in the past and why people in the past accepted that God was speaking to us through other people, particularly. And so that's our second point here, is a God who speaks through whom he chooses. 1 Samuel 3, 19 to 21 says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's top to bottom, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, where the Lord revealed himself, to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So God is speaking to all the people through Samuel who spoke on behalf of God. God spoke to Samuel and Samuel was speaking to the people. Samuel was a prophet. So the prophets in the Old Testament and really the the apostles in the New Testament are the main way that God has communicated to people through history. God spoke to the people through prophets. Now, when we think about the word prophet, we typically think somebody who predicts the future, but it's more than that. A prophet told God's people what God wanted them to know, but he spoke through the prophet. He spoke words of warning and discipline and blessing and grace. And some messages pertain to the future and some pertain to current practices. And the prophet didn't just say his own view and say, this is what I think maybe that God would want me to say. The word came to him. And he was to say what God told him to say. So this is from D.A. Carson, uh, who was a a noted writer. He said, A prophet's primary function in the Old Testament was to serve as God's representative or ambassador by communicating God's word to his people. True prophets never spoke on their own authority or shared their personal opinions, but rather delivered the message God God himself gave to them. So what he's saying is when the prophet spoke, the words were in quotes. He wasn't saying, this is what I think. He's quoting and saying, this is what God says. This is what God has told me. And this is different from what I do as a preacher. Because as a preacher, I read God's word, I study God's word, and I'm trying to explain what God's word says. But I'm not bringing new revelation from God. I'm just explaining what he's already said. But the Old Testament prophet was bringing things that maybe previously had been unsaid by God, or maybe was being repeated by God and saying, You need to pay attention to what I've said before. But the prophet was speaking to the people with a new revelation. And you can see that also here with Samuel. Now, the question uh, comes up sometimes is uh, why doesn't God just speak individually to us? Well, I'm going to address this two ways. The first way, real quick, and the other way in just a moment. In Exodus 20, is the reason why. It's because when Moses was uh, giving the Ten Commandments, that the Israelites had come out of uh, Egypt, they'd crossed through the Red Sea, they were at the foot of Mount Sinai, and it was terrifying, because the presence of the Lord was there. There was a, basically a big funnel cloud that had settled on top of the mountain. There was lightning, there was thunder, there was earthquakes, there was fire, and all you know, a million people, double million, people, you know, lots of people looked, heard the sound, saw the sight. And when Moses came down the mountain, they said, you speak to us for God, but don't have God speak to us anymore, nor let us see this great thing anymore. So God's people actually asked for God to send a prophet to them. This was our idea, right? So, and it was God's idea. So they're asking for, and you know, this is how it's done today. Uh, Kings send messengers on their behalf. Nations today have diplomats. Universities send recruiters. It's very rare that the president of the university goes and recruits like a Florida Gator or anything like that. Um, They have recruiters who do this. They have spokesmen who represent the university, and this is what the prophets were. They were representing the kingdom of God on God's behalf. But the question comes is uh, how do we know that these people really spoke from God? How do we know that this book and not the other books that are out there that claim to be from God, how do we know that the Bible is from God? Why not the Book of Mormon in Christian circles? Why not the Quran? Why just the Bible? So why this book? Well, the reason is, is because we believe that true prophets who spoke on God's behalf wrote this book. True prophets. And the question comes up, well, how did a person become a prophet? Is that something you applied for? Is it something that you trained for? You know, eventually you could just get to a point where you did it. And as you begin to look at Uh, the old testament particularly you see that these people weren't training for this Uh, moses was a shepherd when he was called samuel this is close to training he's in the temple area he's asleep and the voice of god calls him but he wasn't expecting this he thought it was eli in the other room right so they didn't train for this god out of the blue came to them and called them douglas stewart who is a professor at gordon conwell seminary said the word prophet in the Hebrew, means one who is called, one called, having a special commission directly from God, they saw themselves in a special position among mankind. So the prophets who were called and the apostles who were called knew that they were called because they had an appearance by the Lord in some way. But the question comes for us is, well, how do we know and how did the people who heard them, the first, how were they supposed to know about that? Well, how, we, how do we know who speaks for God? How do we know a message is from God? Uh, some of us would say, well, you, you just know when you hear it. And the answer is, no, you don't. That's why there are things out there like the Book of Mormon and the Quran and there you know, other books that people say this is from God when it's really not. So how, how would we know who speaks for God? It can be confusing for us, Right? I don't know if you remember in the last election, there were a lot of people who, were professing, who professed to be Christians who said God appeared to them and told them the outcome of the election. Do you remember that? How many of them were wrong about that? And how many people were confused? And how many people were disillusioned by that? Apparently, you don't just know. So how would, how did, how would we know? How did they know? And uh, the reality is uh, God has left a calling card us signs and wonders and miracles this is what you see when you go to the scripture it's not everybody who's a christian or everybody in the old testament who's performing signs and wonders and miracles it is jesus it's the prophets it's the apostles and there then there are a few scattered other things that happen but it is not the norm in scripture for people who believe and this is what we see acts chapter 2 verse 22 Peter is standing up and addressing the people at Pentecost, and he says to them that Jesus, this man Jesus, was publicly accredited to you by signs, wonders, and miracles. Jesus was authenticated because he's doing; he's got the calling card. Or how about this? In in Acts chapter fourteen, verse three, Paul and Barnabas Barnabas spent a considerable time in this place in, in Iconium, speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The calling card, that's how they knew. They didn't just say, hey, this is my opinion and I'm smarter than other people. No, they're performing signs and wonders and miracles to people and it's confirming the message that they're bringing. So, I know, miracles to modern ears feel like they're they're kind of pretend. Uh, Since the Enlightenment... We have uh, a world in which we have uh, explained it as there is no such thing as any kind of miraculous thing. But as we begin to think about uh, how we've imagined a world in which the events recorded in the Bible couldn't have possibly happened, uh, we've conceptualized it that way as, m- as mythical or legendary. It's not because they have a better historical record than we have. It's not. It's because they have a belief system. That is at work underneath the surface. It says the world couldn't possibly have those things happening. It's just science that explains the world properly. Now, here's the problem. People in the first century knew the way the world worked just as we do. They weren't looking for miracles. In fact, when Jesus showed up performing miracles, people said, we see this all the time. That's not what they said. They said, we have never seen anything like this. They're as flabbergasted as we would be, right? They didn't need Charles Darwin to tell them anything, right? Is that his name? Did I say it right? Yeah, yeah y'all, y'all know that guy Okay, so, so they were looking and said, we know how the world works. We know that somebody who is blind, that's for life. We know that somebody who is paralyzed, that's for life. And But when you look at, let's say, there, there are three times, there are three recorded times in the Gospels that I know of. There, there are more, but three that are significant where there was a healing of a paralyzed man at a critical juncture. One is in Mark chapter 2, the guy's lowered to the roof, and people are floored because it proves that Jesus can forgive sins. Another is in Acts chapter 3, when John and Peter are walking into the temple area, and they heal a man there who's been uh, uh, paralyzed for 40 years. He was born that way. And then again in Acts chapter 13, Paul performs a miracle. And every time it opens the door to people gathering around, saying, "What in the world is going on here?" Because this is this blows all our conceptions about the way reality works, because they're encountering the reality of who God is. So Samuel, there's so the category is uh, miracles. Now, what makes a miracle? How would you know it's really a miracle? Well, number one, this this is all coming from Deuteronomy 18. If you want to go back and read about the prophet in Deuteronomy 18, is uh, the the prophet has to perform a miracle assigned that is public. That is, it, you can't go behind a door and say, I did it! You've got to actually do it where people can see, right? They can, they can, can. It's public. And number two, it's testable, right? I can take my finger off all day long and say, I really did it, and not let you see that there's, you know, I've been... Have y'all ever seen that? Yeah, you'll see me. do. Okay, so it has to be testable, and then it has to be something that is outside of the normal cause and effect so that the only explanation is that it's a supernatural intervention into the world you know a wall of water walking through as you're coming out of Egypt that's a pretty good miracle right there so these are the things that they see and as we come into this passage Samuel meets the criteria that's previously established in this passage he's doing something that only God can do he's telling the future He's predicting the future and saying, this is what God says is going to happen. And then I've given Stephen Brooks the wonderful task of talking about how all of Eli's family dies. So that's going to, he's going to cover that for us uh, as he goes through. But in 1 Samuel 3, we see this uh, last verses that everybody knew. It was public. It was testable. They knew. And this is what we read in 1 Samuel 3 at the end. The Lord was with Samuel and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, top to bottom, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Right? So we look at other religions, and though we might be compassionate towards people and we might find some affinity with the things that they're saying, we'd say, we have to say, we don't think those things are truly from the Lord God. When it comes to Islam, there are many people I have known that are, that are Muslim They're sweet, and they're wonderful. We've had them into our homes on holidays. Uh, I would trust them. Uh, You know, sometimes we're untrustworthy. We think people from other cultures are untrustworthy. Uh, We love them. But at the end of the day, we'd say we don't think that the book you have is really from God because it doesn't meet the criteria that's here in Deuteronomy 18, public, testable, and clearly supernatural. Now, I know when we—and it also doesn't meet this other criteria— which is uh, Deuteronomy 13 says it has to be orthodox. It has to be in line with the things that God has already said. And I've heard Muslim clerics talk about the Bible and say that they twist that people twisted things over time. But there's no record of any of the original writings of the prophets or the apostles having been twisted over time and the message radically changed, right? Have you ever heard of the um, the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls like predate the time of Jesus, right? And so were these scrolls that were found That were intact because they were in the dry desert And they look back at that and realize That the copies of Isaiah that were in The Dead Sea Scrolls are Letter for letter pretty much the same thing we have today There is no record Of things being changed over a period of time And so that means that Islam doesn't meet The second criteria which is orthodoxy About who Jesus is uh, He is fully God and fully man He's the Christ, he's the Messiah uh, He is an, He is the The second person of the Trinity, which is what the Bible teaches. So what this is saying is the Bible is a revelation about God, from God, to us, for us. And it's really from God. And so when you're opening up the pages of the Bible, you're reading the eternal words of a holy and righteous God. It's really from him. Its origin is really from him. Uh, And that means it has to be the most important and primary voice in our lives. Above all voices, orienting all voices, and grounding us. We started our worship service, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, has laid for your faith in his excellent word. That's where we started. It begins there, and it ends there. Now, here's the, part that becomes uh, the rub for some of us is we may acknowledge objectively that it's God's word uh, but uh, how does it impact us and shape us? Right? Because we have all kinds of voices that get into us and shape us and make us who we are but God's word is supposed to have the primacy on that and uh, we all, we're all shaped by our culture so I was, uh, I like watching videos on uh, apologetics and hear what skeptics say about Christianity and, and it helps me think through the questions that people have. And so this week I was watching a, a, a video that caught my eye and uh, there was a, a Q&A time after a lecture by um, Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is a noted atheist and um, like he's very public about that. Like he was part of the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse that was going to be coming on the world. And uh, he was addressing the question, the qu- a lady in the audience said to him, what if you're wrong about your atheism? In other words, what if you're wrong and there really is a God? And so the way he began to address her was he said, you know, all of us are going to disagree, like, be wrong about something. And he said, you know, you. And he started to address her. He he was saying, basically he was saying all beliefs are are functionally the same. And he said, for you, for instance, he said, if you grew up in Roman times, you would have worshipped Roman gods. If you grew up in uh, a Viking village, you would have worshipped Thor and Odin. That's because of where you grew up. If you grew up in like a a Native American culture, those would have been the gods that you worshipped. He said, so for you, you're going to be, you know, there are all kinds of things you might be wrong about. There are all these different views that are out there. And at the end, people really applauded and said, wow, he just kind of dismantled that by showing none of us has the corner market on the truth. And the only thing that we can really say is what science tells us, right? his kind of atheist view. He was saying all the, all the beliefs out there are, are not true and only what I say about science can be true. And you know, it, he's actually kind of right on that. He kind of is right. It's because if you, right now, if we picked you up and put you on a plane and took you down to Ethiopia, none of you would feel very comfortable there. You wouldn't know the customs, your beliefs would be different, the way that you interact with people would be different because you are very much shaped by American culture, you have those assumptions. Some of you, when you lived up, uh, you know, when you used to live up north and you moved down to, you know, functionally this is kind of a southern state, uh, uh, this part of Florida, you know, anyway, we won't go there. So (laughs) let's talk about the social demographics of Florida for a moment, shall we? Um, But when you move down to the south, all of a sudden you're kind of like, I don't know what grits are. I don't know what what in the world is going on with y'all. I have never heard y'all. Am I saying it right? And so you encountered a different kind of culture. And a lot of times in our culture, and and right now in the modern U.S., is people are going through deconstruction. You've heard that. Uh, But what's basically going on is they're pulling apart all the views of Christianity, and they're they're left with a very cultural American view of the world that was already there intact. It was already there. They're pulling out the Christian elements of whatever they believed and that's what they're left with. And so I'm watching Richard Dawkins and I thought, you know, he's right. But the one person he's not really taken into account is himself in this way. As he was talking to this girl and said, the only reason you believe in God is because you grew up in a culture that taught you about God. If you grew up in another culture, you wouldn't have believed in that God. You would have believed in their gods. But what he didn't do is turn the finger back on himself and say, and the only reason that I believe in Darwinism is because I grew up in a post-Darwin culture. I grew up in a post-modern culture. I grew up in a post-enlightenment culture. If I was born before the enlightenment, I would not have the views that I have right now. But I have the views I have now because I have been shaped by my culture too. And the reality is we're all shaped by our culture And we need God's word to give us grounding. And until that's the grounding, we're going to have splintered cultures, splintered societies. Because if you don't have this one thing that we can all appeal to and say, there's an authority outside of ourselves that we can all look to and critique one another and even critique ourselves, then we're not going to have real peace. And that's why the gospel coming into us and God speaking into the world is really good news for us because he's telling us the, tr- the binding truth of his grace to his people and bringing the world back uh, the, the way he originally made it to be. And so what we see as we come here into this passage is there's a God who speaks as he chooses. There's a God who speaks through people, but he's also a God who's speaking redemptively. Now, even, even this, in this passage, when he's speaking judgment on Eli's family, He's intending to remove systemic evil from the temple structure so that the temple can be what it's supposed to be, holding forth grace to God's people instead of a place of abuse. And this is what we read in, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh. The word of the Lord had been rare. But the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So God is on the verge of blessing his people in a mighty and a big way by clearing, clear-cutting the temple area and then establishing something new uh, during the time of David. So the Bible, all of it, is really a book of blessing to God's people. It recounts the promises God made, the covenant he's entered into, his actions performed on our behalf. So, in other words, the point of this passage is not if someday you're lying in bed and you hear a voice from the next room calling your name, it's probably not going to be your call to be a prophet, right? There's somebody there and they're asking for water or something, right? David? Yes, that's Rebecca. Okay. And you call me, call me. That's not how she sounds. It's better. Um, so, the point of the passage is. God has spoken to us through Samuel. And all the promises and things are calling us, God is calling us to live within the framework of all of this. He really has spoken. So he's calling us to live in the knowledge and understanding, the the delight and joy, the confidence direction that his word gives us for how to live right now. This really is from God. And that's what 1 Samuel and the Bible are about. It's about the promises and their fulfillment that we can bank on every day, that we can trust in and build our lives on. The Bible is about what God has done for us in Jesus. And we, we see this built into the Old Testament. The whole of the Bible, not just the first part, but all of it is really about God's grace. Listen to this. This is from J. Gresham Machen. He says, The very center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God. Or how about this from Mark Dever, 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 I, I never said, it, right? He says, the message of the Bible is that God will save his people. So at any point where you drop in the Habakkuk, Second Timothy, Isaiah, or Deuteronomy, it is going to be connected somehow to this main trunk road of the good news of what God is doing in our world. So the Bible is really from God. And the people who were prophets of old, who wrote it down for us in the Bible, they really were speaking for God. So objectively speaking, the Bible is God's word. It's the word of the Lord. Now, as we, as we think about that, uh, it can be the word of God objectively. How do we begin to bring that word into us? Uh, objective sounds like the wrong word. Uh, personally. Bring it into our lives personally. And the Bible talks about uh, that uh, heart change that comes by engaging with God in his word. So we, bring, we believe this is God's word. We bring it in front of us and say, I want to know God through this. So we come in faith with expectation that God is going to meet us as we open the word. And it doesn't have to look the same, thing for, the same way for everybody. For some, the way that they first come is uh, through a sermon. And that was true of me. A guy standing in front, reading God's word, explaining what it meant, and illustrating it for me. Boom. That was the moment where God first brought me. And that's been a huge part of my growth as a Christian. For some of us, it is small groups. In the middle of a small group, uh, as people are talking about God's word, everything clicks. And you come to faith in Jesus. And so small groups are a great avenue for dealing with work, working, being with God in his word. And for some of us, it's just opening up the Bible and reading for the first time are reading continually and having fellowship with God. And for a lot of people, that's in an unexpected way. They're not expecting to meet with God. They're not expecting to be convinced. They're just expecting to read a book. But God meets with them. Let me tell you a story. I'm going to say this guy's name because I'm uh, a Caucasian dude who grew up in the South. Uh, he's, uh, but uh, I got this a story. That I, it's a story, a story I came across this week. Is a Chinese man named Xiaohu Huang. So I'm going to butcher that, and uh, y'all just forgive me for that. Um, Chao was living in Germany with his wife, Kirsten. Chow was a Buddhist. His wife was uh, somebody who's not a believer. She rejected Western Christianity the way she talked about it. Uh, But they were living in Germany, and uh, when his birthday came, she wanted to get him a book that was written in Chinese. So she searched everywhere to find a Bible written in Chinese, and she could only find one and it was a Bible. And she was very displeased that the only Bible she could find in Chinese to give him for his birthday was, uh, was a Bible. But she bought it, hoping that he would appreciate the gesture. So she gave him the Bible. And he was displeased to get a Bible for his birthday. But he was hungry for his native language, so he started to read the Bible because it was written in Chinese. And what he found... Just reading it no sermons no small groups no Christians just the Bible he was persuaded that it was true and he began to believe and he began to talk about it with his wife who was displeased that he was talking to her about Christianity but because she wanted to kind of relate to her husband and convince him that he was wrong she started to read his Chinese Bible and she was persuaded that it was true by all the arguments. And she began to believe. And so they sat together and they started studying the Chinese Bible together and became convinced we need to be part of a Christian community. And so they started to go into a church and they became members of the church and they were baptized into the name of Jesus. Just reading the word of God for you. We have a treasure We have the words of life. We have the words of God right in front of us. We could go to a bookstore and get one. We have some on that table back there. If you need one, we'd be glad to give you one. Uh, There are study Bibles to help you ask and answer questions that you don't even know you have yet. But be in God's word. We have lots of small groups that go on with our church. We would love for you to be in one, to know God better through his word. Let me pray for you. Lord, you have spoken in your word, and everything that we read it in is true. So when you say that we are forgiven, we can believe that we're forgiven. When you say, Lord Jesus, that someday, one day, you're going to come back and make all things new, we can bank on that. It's true. When we read in your word that you're with us always, even to the very end of the age, we can have that assurance that you really are with us. Even though we don't have some sort of a uh, a radar system to detect your presence, that you are, because you said so. And so we pray for our friends in here who are still asking questions that don't know you yet. We pray, Lord, that you would convince them to read your word, to encounter you, And for those of us who haven't picked up our Bibles in a long time because we're angry at you, life is not going the way that we wanted, we're too busy for you, we pray that you would move our hearts to sit and to read and to know you better, to see that you love us and you have spoken clearly to us. Would you bless us and be with us? And would you receive this last song as a hymn of praise and thanks to you? And we pray it in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.